Amen. First Kings, chapter 20, before I begin, the first song we did tonight, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Very fun to sing with children, because you go kind of slow on the first one, and you do it again a little faster, and you go real fast until they fall out the chair. <laughs> so it's a fun song, and the Jews uh, are known to sing with energy in some of their songs, dancing before the ark with all their might. Well, botched victory. That's this evening's title. In many ways, this uh, chapter epitomizes those who think they know better than God and remain apart from him, refusing to become his subject. This is King Ahab. He is the king of the Jews here at this time. We know the husband of Jezebel. It's difficult to set a timeline, chronological order for this, because um, the events are kind of, they should be switched around, I think, with chapter 21, 20 for 21. Now, I'm not alone in this thinking. The Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Septuagint, does it that way. It puts this 20th chapter as the 21st chapter, and then the 21st chapter, which is about Naboth, as the 20th. Hope it didn't confuse you. So just switch 20 with 21, and it flows much better. And in the first verse of chapter, when we get to chapter 22, we'll make it uh, perfect sense. But this is what we have. Now, no truth is lost in any of this. It's just a chronology and how the historians uh, handed it to us. But it is no, there are no contradictions or slights. Uh, you can uh, come to that conclusion by careful analysis. For instance, in this chapter, where is Elijah? Where is Jezebel? These two characters should be present if it's in chronological order with chapter 19. I think Jezebel fled to Sidon for two reasons. Well, she had to replace 450 prophets of Baal, so that was one cause. But also, if chapter 19, uh, chapter 21 comes after chapter, 20, after chapter 19, did I say that wrong? If chapter 21 comes after 19, switching 20 with 22, then you have this word from Elijah. 1 Kings 21, verse 23, concerning Jezebel, Yahweh also spoke, saying, The dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Well, she might have taken that seriously and said, You know what? I'm not going to be around the wall of Jezreel. I'm going to go to Sidon, home where my dad is, and, and get some new prophets. That is a big possibility because, again, she is absent through these events. So, uh, looking at verse 1, now Ben-Hadad, king of Israel, gathered all his forces together. Thirty-two kings were with him, with horses and chariots, and he went up and besieged Samaria and made war against it. Interesting note here, the topography of Samaria is very hilly. Chariots ain't going to work well there. <clears throat> that comes out in the story, too. Now, this is Ben-Hadad II, and it's a title, not his name. He is the king in Syria, the ancient name for Syria, Aram, which is in some of the translations because it's the original word used there, not to be confused with Assyria. Syria and Assyria next to each other. Syria is still there today. Assyria is located in Iraq, in their territory today. Anyway, 
Uh, this is Ben-Hadad II. There are three of them in the scripture. And uh, they were trade rivals with the northern kingdom, and that's where this confrontation is really coming from. Uh, this, the, these raids and these, uh, f- the frequency of war between these two kingdoms, Syria and, and northern Israel. It says here, gathered all his forces together. Thirty-two kings were with him with horses and chariots. These are likely chieftains, not kings, not whole kingdoms. Um, they're not really major players. In fact, he's going to get rid of them later on. Um, anyway, li- likely small little tribal territories that are under the Syrian king's authority, paying tribute and also contributing troops for war. Well, when when the British Empire was in place, if the crown went to war, so did its colonies. This is why in World War II, India, Canada, Australia, uh, all the colonies, other colonies of of Great Britain, England, uh, they got involved. And that's what was happening here. If Syria goes to war, all these little chieftains are coming too. And they went up and besieged Samaria, it says here, and made war against it, the capital of the northern kingdom. Well, Syria lost trade routes in the north to Assyria. Assyria is going to continue to become a problem until they become this this juggernaut that no one can, can stop. Well, when they lost those trade routes, the Syrians said, well, we've got to get some way of supplying ourselves because these Assyrians are going to come against us eventually. So they looked to Israel. We'll take their trade routes. In fact, we'll take their kingdom, and we'll force them to be one of the chieftains in our, uh, for, in our cause. Uh, so that's where all of this is, is coming from. They, they want those southern trade routes, and they're going to try to force Israel to provide uh, weapons and tribute uh, as with the others. Verse 2, then he sent messengers into the city of, to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, thus says Ben-Hadad. It's, it's really Hadad, but it's, it's man, it's, I guess so, he's twisting turns with these pronunciations. They make you go bald. <laughs> anyway, verse 3, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your loveliest wives and children are mine. Well, uh, by mine, their mine means, yeah, he's not necessarily saying, okay, I'm going to take them all with me to Syria. But he is saying, if I want to, I will. I'm claiming it. I'm making you subject to my kingdom in every way. Ahab initially will accept this. He continues, your loveliest wives and children are mine. Again, you ask, well, where is Jezebel at this time? You would you think that as wicked as she was and as mouthy as she was, I mean, she's still mouthing off right before she gets thrown out the window. She, you know, she's a nut. Anyhow, um, yeah, because she goes to put her makeup on. Right? She's like, I don't want to be caught dead without my makeup on. Well, that really happened. Anyhow, uh, the harems of the kings of, of the east, they were very possessive of their harems. It guarded them fiercely. To uh, surrender one was to be shamed. And this is to, goes back even in the, with David and Absalom, Ahithophel advising him, you know, take the, the concubines and make your statement. So um, this is part of what's going on, verse 4. And the king of Israel answered and said, O my lord, O king, just as you say, I and all that I have are yours. And so 
he says, okay, fine, I, I submit. And he's using these reverent titles, my lord, O king, um, just wanting this not to escalate. Certainly meeting with his counselor, saying, well, we'll just pay the fines. He's probably not going to come here and take anything. Wrong. The appeasing of this uh, Ben-Hadad is going to fail. Verse 5, then the messengers came back and said, thus speaks Ben-Hadad, saying, indeed, I have sent to you, saying, you shall deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. But, verse 6, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants, and it shall be whatever is pleasant in your eyes, they will put it in their hands and take it. <laughs> Man, this guy, he is, this, this is going to be his downfall. He wants to plunder the capital city, the palace. You know, so he wants to ransack the guy's house, go through his stuff. You just don't do that. That's why I encourage you, get signs printed up for when you get raptured. Put them on your front lawn and in your house. Don't touch my stuff. Be back in seven years. And, uh, but anyway, he wanted to reduce, uh, not only reduce them to a servant state, he wanted to ruin the kingdom, just take everything for himself. Verse 7, so the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, notice please, and see how this man seeks trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children, my silver and my gold, and I did not deny. Uh, so at this point, this is a direct attack on the kingdom. Just not using troops yet. Uh, if he doesn't have to, to save money in doing it. Uh, he wants to take everything without resistance. This is different from the initial symbolic gesture of your children are mine, your gold, you still have, would have to pay, but this is worse. Ahab appears to be a capable leader when you know who is not around. Jezebel, his wicked wife. When she's not there, he, 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 he functions well. But when she's there, he just falls apart into this monster. It is also interesting here that it says, and see how this man, well, the, the translators have inserted the word man, the pronoun. In the Hebrew, it is, you see how this trouble, and you say, well, that's just the way he's talking. No, this is when he is upset because he does the same thing when Micaiah, the prophet whom he despises, begins to, to deal with him. He's going to say, you know, I hate this, this, not this man, not this prophet, this. He's insulting him. And so this human element's coming out, and you get to see this Ahab when he doesn't like somebody. He lets those around him know it. Uh, it's... Uh, should it be any other way but uh, realistic? Verse 8, And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. Well, they're not going to be ransacked without a fight. They're getting a little upset at this too. Verse 9, Therefore he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king all that you sent for to your servant. The first time I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought back word to him. Well, he's course, of course, when he says, well, that you said before, the silver gold, I, I could do that. But I, this is where I draw the line. You cannot just come and take my stuff. And I know the initial thought is, well, what a, you know, he's, where's the chivalry? Where's the defense for his children and, and his family? Well, again, he's probably not viewing that as a direct threat that could escalate, but it's not there. 
But this now is, now that coming into the kingdom, actually touching things. Uh, I think that's more of what is taking place. And he is not going to let them strip it bare. He would lose the kingdom if they did. Uh, verse 10, then, and pause there a minute. We're seeing this in the Ukraine, are we not? <laughs> Let's just come and take your, your government from me. I'm not picking sides or anything like that. Um, I'm, I'm, in other words, I'm not getting into the politics of it, just the raw facts of one army invading another uh, government. That's some serious stuff. Verse 10, then Ben-Hadad said to him, uh, sent to him, and said, The gods do so to me, and more also, if dust is left of Samaria for a handful for each of the people who follow me. So now he's getting into this big talk, this propaganda, the common oath, may God do so to me and more. Uh, it just Some of you might remember Baghdad Bob <laughs> during the Gulf War. Well, I have two quotes, because when it happened, when it was going on, we were in Kings, I think, and we weren't or not. I knew I was going to get this into this section. This is one thing that he said when the coalition forces were in Iraq, and in force, well, over a half a million men almost, um, he says, Baghdad Bob, who was the um, uh, PR guy for Saddam Hussein, he says, our initial assessment is that they will all die. <laughs> Meanwhile, he's wiping out the Iraqi troops. And then he said, God will roast their stomachs in hell at the hands of the Iraqis. And he would just say these wacky things. And you'd say, who is this guy? He's their minister of information? And he was. Uh, I think he's still alive. He, he, you know, he was such a, such a non-threat to the world. They let him live. They don't even arrest him. They just let him go. Baghdad Bob. Anyway, this is kind of like that. You know, There's not going to be enough dust left for my people to take out of your country when I'm done with you. Which is not true. You'd have to go all the way down past China. I mean, you, <laughs> anyway. Verse 11. So the king of Israel answered and said, Tell him. Let not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. I love this part. I mean, this is, talk is cheap. You've got to play the game. Don't talk like you've already won. You haven't even dressed up for the, for the fight. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. And here is this, it's, it's in action. This response of Ahab, this pithy little comeback, there's actually only four words in the Hebrew. And it's a proverbial. It's it just, you know, like, shut up. <laughs> kind of a, you, you know, talk is cheap. Verse 12, and it happened when Ben-Hadad heard this message as he and the kings were drinking at the command post that he said to his servants, get ready. And they got ready to attack the city. Well, he's enraged, of course. The guy comes back to him like, no, no, you, you, you take a hike. You can't take this stuff. So he's enraged. And he uses, is actually where it says, um, get ready. It's a single word in the Hebrew. And um, just like action. And so everybody uh, jumps into war gear now. Um, how many young men will die because of this foolish Wicked king Ben-Hadad. Verse 13, suddenly a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel, saying, Thus says Yahweh, 
Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into your hand today, and you shall know that I am Yahweh. Well, this is why it's in the Bible. This is why this story is in the Bible. Otherwise, it's just a, you know, a war story. And there's no end to those. Uh, God is trying to get Ahab to trust him, to believe him. And he is using what uh, the most dramatic experience in, in the human existence in this life is war, combat. Is there anything worse than that? Uh, just how many, you know, on the scale, the horror, the, the misery it leaves behind. Well, uh, anyway, the prophet shows up. He's not, his name, he's not named, reminding us that there were other prophets in Israel than Elijah, saying, thus says the Lord, and his message is straight from God, and he's saying, yeah, you're greatly outnumbered. You're not, you have no chance. That's why you were capitulating so quickly. But I'm going to give you the victory. And so God reaching out to the king and the kingdom to turn from their idols, this is why the victory is going to be given to him. Twice. He's going to fight the Assyrians twice and beat them both times. He and the people will botch the victories because they will not surrender to Yahweh. And this is we epitomizes the worldly man, Mr. Worldly Wise, who's just determined to live his way and not really care about what God is doing and even benefit from the goodness and kindness of God. Uh, this is um, common. Verse, 20, uh, verse 14. So Ahab said, By whom? He's answering the prophet. How are we going to get this victory? He says, Behold, I will deliver you into the hand today, and you shall know that I am Yahweh. So Ahab said, verse 14, By whom? And he said, Thus says Yahweh, By the young leaders of the provinces? It's Ahab. And he said, Thus says the Lord, By the young leaders of the provinces? Then he said, Who will set the battle in order? And he answered you. All right, so I, I, I talk about botched up victories. It's botched up verse. I get excited. <laughs> There's so much, you know, going on here. Ahab said to the prophet, by whom? And the prophet said, thus says Yahweh, by the young leaders of the provinces. Then he said, Ahab, who will set the battle in order? And the prophet answered, you. Ahab is a bad man given a good opportunity to turn his life around. Here's another good thing to preach to somebody. You find people knuckleheads like this. Can't you see God working in your life? But they, they, it's just so hard for them. Uh, they, they won't give you a chance to say these things so many times. We want God to instantly defeat our foe. Yet there are times God wants us to take command of the battlefield. He'll give us the outline and we've got to go execute it. That's what's going on here. And this is a profound little piece of uh, scripture verse. Shows up in Acts chapter 4 when the apostles, entering into persecution, prayed, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. That we will set the battle in order. Who will set the battle in order? The apostles said, We will. Because they had that from the Lord to go out into the world and preach the gospel. So I, I like that. He. he um, He's, God tells him, you're going to get these uh, young leaders involved. We'll get to those in a moment. And uh, 
then you will command the battle. Verse 15. Then he mustered the young leaders of the provinces, and there were 232. And after them, he mustered all the people, all the children of Israel, 7,000. Now, it's difficult to identify just who these guys are. They're young. They're in the provinces. They're leaders or people of notoriety. I think they are elite troops because that's how they behave in this story. I don't think they're princes with their long robes and they've got the, you know, the high life and they never get their hands dirty or anything like that. So what we have here is Israel has a brigade side army, size army, but Syria has an army group. So there's like 7,000 men next to 100,000. Those are the numbers we're working with. So how can the 7,000 win? The 200 guys, that's a, a rifle company. What are they going to do? Well, verse 16. So they went out at noon. Meanwhile, Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings helping him were getting drunk at the command post. Now, that's leadership. (laughs) Let the corporals lead the fight. Verse 17, the young leaders of the provinces went out first. Now, these these are the, uh, well, let's just read it. Verse 17, and Ben-Hadad sent out a patrol and they told him, saying, men are, going, are coming out of Samaria. So here are these young leaders, these 232 uh, Hebrews, are coming out. Ben-Hadad had his patrols out. That's what you do. You set your perimeter. You put patrols out. You look for skirmishes to see how the other side, how much force they can get to the battle to kind of feel everybody out. And so they report back to him about these 200 young men coming out. Verse 18, so he said, if they have come out for peace, take them alive. And if they have come out for war, take them alive. So his orders are, well, if if they're looking to surrender, don't kill them. But if they want to fight, try to capture them so we can interrogate them and find out what's going on. Verse 19, then these young leaders of the provinces went out of the city with the army which followed. These are the Hebrews. There's 7,000 are following. Verse 20, and each one killed his man, so the Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, escaped on a horse with the cavalry. Verse 21, then the king of Israel went out and attacked the horses and chariots and killed the Syrians with a great slaughter. Again, that's a hilly area, and they, they didn't have just the room they want. The next time they come to war, they're going to factor that in, and we're going to fight them in the valley next time. Anyway, that uh, elite unit, as I see them, 232 with the 7,000 following, deliver an upset victory because God had ordained it. You would hope that Ahab would see it. Verse 22, And the prophet came to the king of Israel and said to him, Go strengthen yourself, take note, And see what you should do, for in the spring of the year, the king of Syria will come up against you. The enemy's going to come back. He's not satisfied. Yeah, you beat him, but he still thinks he can take you. He lost the battle. He's going to win the war. That's how he's thinking, and you need to be ready. Jesus, when he was tempted in the wilderness, Luke adds this note. Now, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And that's a tactic of the enemy. He gets pushed back. He regroups. He doesn't quit, ever. We go through this life. 
with body armor. <laughs> we sleep with body armor. We wake up with body armor. Uh, the uh, Christian, uh, hopefully, always ready. And I know it's hard, and the Lord sustains us. The springtime was the time of year that typically arm, armies went to war. Well, because the provisions would be there. They could live off the land. They could feed the livestock uh, better. It just it wasn't rainy, and chariots couldn't get bogged down, supply wagons. There's a reason why they went to war. Uh, we'll come back to that. Verse 23. Then the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are the gods of the hills. Therefore, they were stronger than we, but if we fight against them in the plain, surely we will be stronger than they. Well, his advisors came up with an explanation why such a large army was defeated by such a small army. It didn't take much. Once you get them in retreat, I mean, they just panic and drop their weapons and, and flee. And that's what happened to these Syrians. So they spin it and say, you know what? We're going to beat them this time. We'll, we'll choose a different battlefield. Um, that's, that's the flat ground. A widespread superstition, of, as we've covered before through the kings, was that um, the gods were localized. Deities were localized. You had the god of the ocean, you know. Then you see this in Greek mythology, Neptune, and then you have this one over here. Uh, and that, that, that thought is a pagan man just making up things about God rather than receiving things from God about God. And so by that definition, we know that if a god is localized, if he's only the god of the valley, then he's not god at all. Our god is, of course, everywhere. This is what the psalmist was saying in Psalm 139, Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uppermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. This was unlike the pagan gods. So when the Jewish said the Jews said the living God, so not the statue that is dead. Our God is alive and He is ubiquitous, and He is omniscient. And even the Greek and Roman gods were not this way. They had more power than humans, more jealousy and rage and hatred and pettiness also. Uh, well, this is um, this is what uh, they were up against. Verse twenty-four. So do this thing. This is the advisors to King Ben-Hadad. Dismiss the kings from his position, each from his position, and put captains in their places. Now, it appears that these chieftains really weren't military men. They were just tribal chieftains who oversaw the government and their, their groups. And the suggestion seems to be put military commanders over them. Verse 25, and you shall muster an army like the army that you have lost. Well, that had to sting. Just hearing that. Uh, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain. Surely we will be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. Verse 26. So it was in the spring of the year that Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphex to fight against Israel. Well, it's war season, everybody. We've been all getting ready for this all winter long. Ecclesiastes 3, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, a time of peace. These are the cycles 
these are the days of our lives, like sands to the hourglass. <laughs> okay. You younger guys don't know. You miss so much humor being born late. <laughs> but, but when you get to where I am, you'll be able to torture the youth of your time. Uh, anyhow, <clears throat> verse 27. And the children of Israel were mustered and given provisions, and they went against them. Now the children of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats, while the Syrians filled the countryside. So there's that size disparity between the two armies. It's highlighted, so God's going to get the credit. They're getting their wish. They're in the valley now. Their chariots will be able to be unleashed. You know, it's sort of like you can't tanks don't work well in the jungle, not as well as they do in an open field. Well, the chariots were their mechanized army of the day. Verse 28, Then a man of God came and spoke to the king of Israel and said, Thus says Yahweh, because the Syrians have said Yahweh is God of the hills, but he is not God of the valleys. Therefore, I will deliver all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am Yahweh. So this is repeated. It's probably the same prophet. Uh, the historians seem not to have been sure, so they just omit the, some of the details. Uh, that seems to be what's happening. Didn't David defeat the giant in the Valley of Elah? So they didn't know their war history. Had they known their history, they would have known it was God. There. The God of the Jews <laughs> could kill you in the valley too. Well, uh, anyway... Uh, Again, probably the the same prophet. Now this, you know, the each nation having their own God or gods. And when you left the land, your God stayed behind. And and now the other God took over the territory. It's sort of like, you know, now entering, you know, Hanover County. (laughs) Now entering Bowles County, you know, the kind of thinking. And this is probably behind King Hiram of Tyre and the Queen of Sheba when they came and they were just praising Yahweh for the blessings on David and Solomon. There's possibility that they did not mean Yahweh is God, there is no other, but that, well, this is where your God is and he's blessed you. I like to think that they were really moved towards Yahweh, but uh, we'll find out when we get to heaven. It won't be my first stop when I get there, though. <laughs> Maybe about three or 4,000 years. Is Hiram here, by the way? Anyway, verse 29. And they encamped opposite each other for seven days. So it was that on the seventh day, the battle was joined. And the children of Israel killed 100,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians in one day. Now, you, you look at these numbers, and they're not, to me, surprising. I mean, when Napoleon invaded Russia, he had half a million men with him. Uh, it, that was in 1812. The Battle of the Somme, which is uh, in, the, the, in France, uh, 106 years ago, almost to the day, this is June 1st, July 1st, 1916, on that single day, the first day of battle, over 70,000 casualties 60,000 of them British troops. It's uh, just one of the, the greatest loss ever. So, but now, of course, that's machine guns. and so. Well, you also had first aid. You had, you know, field medics and hospitals and doctors saving lives, even though there were many of them mangled. And they only got six miles in the fight. What a loss for nothing. Butchering. Anyway, uh, this number, 100,000, 
Well, you know, I, when you get sliced with a sword, especially in the back, chances of you surviving are, aren't too good. Uh, and that's uh, what we have here, a, a day of, of butchering. Verse 30, But the rest fled to Aphek, into the city. Then a wall fell on 27,000 of the men who were left, and Ben-Hadad fled and went into the city into an inner chamber. Well, I'm not one to try to, I hope I'm not, excuse the large numbers in the scripture. The sometimes where there are uh, discrepancies without contradictions, believe it or not. And, uh, for example, here, 27,000 men. How do you get a wall to fall on them and kill them? Well, what if it's a stadium-like structure? I mean, a modern Yankee stadium holds, what, 54,000 people, a little over that? So you get half the size of a stadium. And what if it's, you know, poor construction, you know, actually, oh, they didn't, they didn't take the core samples and <laughs> stuff. They didn't go through the proper steps. You know, did you get a work permit for this? Uh, anyhow, it's not, to that part, I have no problem with the wall falling or the timing of it. How do you get 27,000 people in an area that tight? Well, if it's a walled city and it goes in a circle and it's a domino effect like Jericho, uh, then, uh, yeah, I don't have any problem, especially if it's got, you know, separate tiers to it. You inner cha- chambers, which is common, common in much of the ancient wall structures. You had chambers below the, 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 the walls where people would, would gather. So you had troops just hanging out there, recuperating, you had, and, and the wall falls on them in this earthquake. At the time, um, in... October 11, 2006, I made a note in this section of scripture because there was a 7.6 magnitude earthquake in Pakistan and it killed 79,000 people. So, uh, you know, the the infrastructure of Pakistan, at least in 2006, wasn't able to uh, sustain such a hit like that. Anyway... Uh, that's where we are. I have no problem believing that 27,000 troops were killed, and I'm certainly not going to throw my salvation away because I think that that's a contradiction. The Bible is so true in so many areas that it demands respect, and this is why it is despised and targeted because those who... uh, the, the, The respected demands from the people that are living... Against it, uh, they don't want to submit. They, they don't want God to be God. They don't want him to be true. They don't want his word to be his word. And uh, that, that doesn't make it go away. The prophecies, which is what Peter was saying, we have the more sure word of prophecy. The prophecies are so sound, so many of them, that you can't ignore any of it. You can't look at that verse and say 27,000 and scoff at it and not violate reason. Reason dictates, listen, if this horse has ran 10 races and won all 10, he's probably going to win the 11th, too. Uh, that is, now, of course, you, there might be factors involved. Is he wearing sneakers? You know, does he have a contract now? Anyhow, verse 32. <laughs> I mean, the things that, verse 32. So they, were, they wore sackcloth around their waist and put ropes around their heads and came to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. And he said, Is he still alive? He is my brother. He, he is my brother. Sorry, I'm getting this character's going to 
botched because I wanted to insert this comment. If the king of Israel is surprised that the king of Syria is still alive, that's an indicator that that catastrophe in the walled city was so severe that he didn't expect anybody to survive. But he does survive. And so that's, I think, another uh, proof that it was literal, just as it's recorded. So coming back to verse 32, the wearing of the sackcloth uh, around their waist and the ropes around their heads or their neck area, a symbol, they didn't have <laughs> white flags. This is how they surrendered, the send, sent the signal that they had surrendered. And they, your servant Ben-Hadad says, please let me live. And he said, is he still alive? He is my brother. That's important to the story. Because this is what's botching up the victory. And I didn't miss a verse, did I? 31. I thought I missed that verse. All right. Let's go back to verse 31. Then his servant said to him, look now. Yes, a big verse, too. I'm not in magnitude, just in importance. Look now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Please let us put sackcloth around our waist and ropes around our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So there was a reputation that the people that were influenced by the God of Abraham were more merciful than the people that were influenced by homemade gods. And so they are trying to take advantage of this. Now, they wouldn't give this kind of courtesy, but they don't mind receiving it. It's so typical of, of humanity. And then he comes and, and he says, please let me live. And is he alive? He is my brother. What brother? Either he is saying that because he is a fellow king. I don't think that's it. That's possible. Or because Abraham was Syrian. I think that's closer to it. Either way, he's letting the rattlesnake go free in his own backyard. That's, the, that's what's going on here. God has condemned Ben-Hadad to be killed. Eventually, he will be killed in his own country by his own people. But Ahab was supposed to do it. And he's not going to do it. Because he thinks he's wiser than God, more merciful than God, uh, without even processing the thought. He's just rolling that way. When people do this, they think God, you know, is just cruel and mean, and they're kind and gentle. Verse 33. Now, the men were watching closely to see whether any sign of mercy would come from him. And they quickly grasp at this word and said, Your brother Ben-Hadad. So he said, Go bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he had him come up into his chariot, welcoming him with open arms. Your brother, <laughs> your brother Ben-Hadad. They're saying, Sucker. <laughs> like they know their life was hanging in the balance. What a relief. To, uh, you know, hear this by a thread they're holding on. So he's going to take this wicked king into his limousine with him. Imagine Eisenhower doing this to Hitler or Mussolini. Uh, you know, or Peter doing this to Judas Iscariot. Impenitent people, you know. Just, just, 
There is a such a thing as an enemy. And this um, pithy little response of his, this pathetic little response, it, it is false pity, and it, it produced disobedience to God's command, and that is the sin. Verse 34, so Ben-Hadad said to him, the cities which my father took from your father, I will restore, and you may set up marketplaces for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And then Ahab said, I will send you away with this treaty. So he made a treaty with him and sent him away. Now he's just patting himself on the back, Ahab. He thinks he's just a statesman, and he's spared the life, and everybody is happy. A lot of blood was spilled in Israel by this man and his father before him, the Syrians launching their raids. In fact, remember, uh, Naaman's a Syrian, and he has a prisoner that's a little young Hebrew girl. And she came out of these raids, as, as did others. She was a survivor. Ahab receives the right for Israeli or Israelite, The difference between an Israeli and an Israelite is the Israelites are the Jews uh, under the children of Abraham in Israel under the authority of the law. An Israelite is a citizen in Israel. And they could be the, uh, the Jews or the Muslims. They could be Israelites, but they're not Hebrews. An American can live there or, you know, someone... Uh, transplants to live there, and they are an Israelite if they become a citizen. But they're not, I mean, they're Israelis, but they're not Israelites. This is um, an ethnic thing. Well, with the religion, of course, you, you, if you convert to Judaism, you become an Israelite, as did Rahab. Well, these cities were taken by bloodshed. That's recorded in 1 Kings 15. We already went there. Uh, This treaty will last for three years. We know that because in chapter 22, which would follow this chapter if they had it in the order that I said, (laughs) chapter 22, verse 1, now three years passed without war between Syria and Israel. And that's based on this treaty here. So he made a covenant again with a man whom God had devoted to destruction. Verse 35 Now a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his neighbor, By the word of Yahweh, strike me, please. And and the man refused to strike him. So this prophet, not happy with what the king is doing, as you might not be happy with, you know, say you had a president, and let's just say his name was Trader Joe. Uh, You might not be happy with everything that he was doing. And if you had a chance to confront him, you would. Well, that's what's happening here. He's confronting Trader Joe, and he's going to use an action lesson to do this. So, uh, or I should say an action sermon to make his message stick uh, to a head made hard by a hardened heart. Now, Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 20, he dressed like a prisoner of war for three years to make his point. Jeremiah, of course, he made a wooden yoke and an iron yoke and paraded those around in front of his audience. Ezekiel played war and ate the prisoners' rations and, uh, in Ezekiel 4. In Jeremiah 27, 28, if you want to go back and read those. 
And if you do go back and read all of that, let me know. I'll be impressed. (laughs) Then I'll just ramp it up for next time, make it more difficult. Anyway, so these lessons like this are not new. Well, those prophets all come after this this event here. So (laughs) anyway, verse 36, then he said to him, the, the prophet speaking to Ahab, the king of Israel, because you have not obeyed the voice of Yahweh, surely as soon as you... De- Wait a minute. I missed something here. I'm sorry. I'm, I don't know. It's such a fun chapter. I, I guess, the, you know, the challenge going through this was like, I hope, I hope I don't bore them with this. I find it all kind of exciting. But maybe um, you don't. So, in verse 35, Now a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his neighbor, By the word of Yahweh, strike me, please. And the man refused to strike him. Uh, verse 36, Then he said to him, Because you have not obeyed the voice of Yahweh, surely as soon as you depart from me, a lion shall kill you. Oh, man. And as soon as he left, a lion found him and killed him. Well, it was a lawful commandment from the, from the prophet. And there was no nonsense time. I, I think there's more to the story. I think they understood because when he goes to the second guy and says, strike me, the guy, boom, pops him, okay. Uh, and uh, maybe he heard about what happened to the other guy or maybe they just all understood when the prophet of God gave you a directive, you were to act on it. Uh, anyhow, three times at least we find lions being part of God's judgment. Samson gets off the easiest. Samson, of course, he was a Nazarite, took the vow, not going to touch anything from the vine. It was one of the parts of his vow from birth. And he gets attacked by a lion in a vineyard. What's he doing in the vineyard? I mean, you, 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 he's snacking on the grapes. You know he is. You just know it. At least raisins. But anyway, <laughs> the lion deals with Samson there. And I think that was a, certainly a judgment. And that was more, a lot more to the story, but that was part of it. Then, of course, there was the prophet and the old man at Bethel. Uh, God told him, don't go eating with anybody, but he did, and the lion killed him. And then there's this one here who refused the prophet. So words come to mind from the New Testament. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Uh, I tell you, that's terrifying were it not for the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Verse 37, and he found another man and said, strike me, please. So the man struck him, inflicting a wound, and he kept hitting him. No, he didn't. (laughs) He got carried away. (laughs) Stop it. I said once. Um, God's going to accomplish his purposes with or without you. And if he invites you to be part of that purpose, it behooves you to be part of that purpose. Now, for those of you who might be getting bored a little bit, I just use the word behooves. Bees have little hooves. (laughs) Oh, gosh, it's so funny. All right. Because you see the, you know, you'll see deer tracks, you know, and you see little bee-hoof tracks, too. (laughs) All right. So, don't not do it. So, where are we? Uh, So, God can get somebody else. and, And that feeling is enough to drive us forward because Mordecai, cousin Mordecai, used it on Esther. Esther, you called for this day. But if you don't want to do it, God will still get it done. 
just without you. And that was enough for her to say, look, okay, fine, if I die, but he's not getting somebody else over me. I, I, that's so true. Now, were I speaking at a pastor's conference, I would make this point from this Bible verse. This prophet was intentionally taking a hit to make his point. He was intentionally bringing about pain on himself to accomplish God's work. And I think nothing makes a pastor want to leave the ministry more than a broken heart, than, you know, just being attacked verbally. Physical things aren't so bad, but to to just have folks say things about you that are half-baked or not true or one side of the story, you know, it can hurt after a while until you, you know, you just... To learn to just deal with it with the Lord, and it's fine. But in those early years, it could be hard. Paul, he took many hits to make his message clear. And sometimes it's what the job calls for, that you've got to take the pain. Uh, sometimes you might find a church, and, oh, they don't have a program for your teens. But the word is preached there. So what are you going to do? You know, not take the hit and go find a church where the church where the word is not preached, but they've got programs. I would encourage any Christian to not be that way. From now on, let no one trouble me," said Paul. "For I, Paul, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus." What a profound statement! I don't want to hear this mess anymore. Because I've taken beatings for Christ. (laughs) He's saying, who are you? (laughs) Who are you to come up and challenge my ministry? Anyway, am I willing to be struck, to suffer a blow, um, in order to effectively serve the Lord? Struck for the sake of effective ministry. That is what this picture is. This man was so devoted, he was willing to take a strike to the face to make his point where it needed to be made, and it didn't work. The king remained an unbeliever, but the prophet was faithful. And when that man, Ahab, stood before the Lord, the rap sheet against him was long. Verse 38, Then the prophet departed and waited for the king by the road and disguised himself with a bandage over his eye. So, I, you know, I don't know if it was on the eyeball or not, but it was on, it was on the face. That's messed up. I would have told him, not the face. <laughs> Punch. This is the moneymaker. Punch me in the chest or something. Here's my wrist. Hit that. Anyhow, uh, <laughs> then the prophet departed and waited for the king by the road and disguised himself with a bandage over his eye. Um, if this man could strike him, then the other man that was eaten, killed by the lion, not eaten, but killed by the lion, he had no excuse. Verse 39, now as the king passed by, he cried out to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle, and there a man came over and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. Now this is a dramatization of the prophet. He's not, it's not a lie because he's going, it's not intended to hurt. He's, he's making his point. And the transition hasn't come yet. Uh, So, uh, verse 40, When your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. Then the king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. 
Ahab had one thing to do as follow the command of God to destroy Ben-Hadad and whatever army got in the way. That was the one thing he had to do. And while he did a hundred things, he neglected the one. He played statesman. He played diplomat and all the other things. Uh, that is the meaning of the parable. He was distracted by other things. He fell for it. Then the king of Israel said to him, you shall, uh, So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Well, the king willfully allowed his enemy to go. In this parable, this action parable, the man did not willfully let the prisoner go. He was distracted. So, the king wants the century to be punished for letting a lesser prisoner go. The prophet exposes the double standard of the king. You had a higher order. You let a higher valued target go free. You're causing more pain for everybody. Verse 41. And then he hastened to take the bandage away from his eyes. And the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. Surprise! This is, some, this is God now. This is a spiritual thing. You, you would think that Ahab would submit to these things. Verse 42. Then he said to him, Thus says Yahweh, because you have let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. You botched the victory. And it means something. It's not just, oh, I could have done better. It's that there's going to be more pain now. Because you thought you knew better than God. It was not supposed to be catch and release the king. This is war. He made a covenant with the man whom God devoted to destruction. He made a covenant with the evil one. That's what took place. That's what's being exposed. It was not for Ahab to forgive Ben Haddon or Hayden. Hadad, that's it. <laughs> I mean, it's hard. You know what's also hard about saying those words? It's because they, they, they're sentences in our languages. Hey, Dad. But that's the guy's name. <laughs> so, anyway. Um, anyway, where, where am I? So, again, Ahab, rather than repenting, no, he just is going to go away angry and, and, and mad. Now, the Jewish historian Josephus writes little comments about some of these sections in the Old Testament. And he says this prophet is Micaiah, who we'll get to in a couple of chapters. One of my favorites, you know, and Ahab hates him. Uh, and Micaiah, and the reason why is because Micaiah never had anything good to say to Ahab. Well, this prophet doesn't have anything good to say to him either. Can't prove it. I might be. I don't know. Neither did the one who recorded this for us. Well, let's see. Verse 43. So the king of Israel went to his house sullen and displeased and came to Samaria. Sad and angry. Typical. He's going to be that way when he can't get Ahab's vineyard, uh, Naboth's vineyard from him. Once again, Ahab was a bad man, given a good opportunity to be great for God, and he ruined it. He's brushing everything away. And in its place, rejection of, of God. So we close with this verse from Second Thessalonians chapter 2. The coming of the lawless one, that is Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan. 
with all power, signs, and lying wonders. What makes a lying wonder a lying wonder? It's not righteous. It's foul. It may be amazing. I can't do that. But it's wrong. It's the motive, the the, the source. It's foul. And this is the thing with Antichrist. Um, He's going to be uh, an immoral person. There'll be no excuse to accept this man. Yet, almost all of humanity will be accepting him. Well, Paul goes on and says, with all unrighteous deception. There, he tells us right there, it's unrighteous. His deception is not wholesome. Among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. That's Ahab. He's the lawless one. Truth did not matter to him. Let's pray. Our Father another series of lessons in one chapter to strengthen us, to fortify us, to give us the ammunition that we might need in trying to reach lost souls. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its lessons. And we thank you for your love on us. May you get us all home safely tonight, we ask you, in Jesus' name, amen.